Take your Bible and find two places, Genesis chapter 2 and Ecclesiastes 12. It says Ecclesiastes 3 in the bulletin. That's my mistake. Uh, so it'll be Genesis 2 and Ecclesiastes 12. We start a series today entitled Caring for Your Soul. You have a soul. It is uniquely you. It was created by God. It is your most important possession. It will exist forever, either in a place called heaven or a place called hell. Therefore, it is of the utmost value. Now, I'm going to repeat those truths before every sermon in this series, and I hope by the end of this series, those truths will be fully embedded in your heart and your mind. You have a soul. It is uniquely you. It was created by God. It is your most important possession. It will exist forever, either in a place called heaven or a place called hell. Therefore, it is of the utmost value. But where did our soul come from? And what exactly is the soul? And why is it of the utmost value? How do we care for our soul? How does God care for our soul? We're going to answer many of those questions today and in the days to come, but let's start this morning in Genesis chapter 2, verse 7. The Bible says, Then the Lord God formed man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. And then Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verse 1. Remember also your Creator in the days of your youth, before the evil days come and the years draw near when you say, I have no delight in them. Before the sun and the light and the moon and the stars are darkened and the clouds return after the rain. In the day when the watchmen of the house tremble and the mighty men stoop, the grinding ones stand idle, be, stand idle because they are few and those who look through the windows grow dim. And the doors on the street are shut as the sound of the grinding mill is low. And one will arise at the sound of the bird, and all the daughters of song will sing softly. Furthermore, men are afraid of a high place and of terrors on the road. The almond blossoms, the grasshoppers drag himself along, and the caperberry is ineffective. For man goes to his eternal home while mourners go about in the street. Remember him. Before the silver cord is broken and the golden bowl is crushed and the pitcher by the well is shattered and the wheel at the cistern is crushed, then the dust will return to the earth as it was and the spirit will return to God who gave it. So this morning, let's consider first, where did the soul come from? Now, as has been mentioned in the Joshua Project and in last week's sermon, the theory of evolution sprang up in the 1800s. Today it would be more accurately described as the enforced dogma of creation. Creationism is increasingly viewed as the belief of backwards fundamentalists, and it's said that evolution is settled science. Yet evolution teaches that when the earth came into existence, nothing came together with nothing, and somehow creation sprang up, without any creator. And it teaches that you and I climbed out of our primordial slime and given enough time, we are what we are today. 
That is like me making a crayon drawing in the first grade, throwing it in the trash, and 58 years later, it's a framed painting hanging in the Louvre in Paris. It makes no sense. But today, evolution is widely believed, vehemently defended, and dogmatically enforced. And here's why. If a transcendent God created mankind, transcendent meaning outside of or a part of, if a transcendent God created us, then we're clearly accountable to said God, and prideful man refuses to be held accountable to anyone. So the quote I used last week fits here, and many of you have asked me to repeat this, so here it is. Thomas Cranmer, the reformer, said, What the heart loves, the will chooses, and the mind justifies. What the heart loves, the will chooses, and the mind justifies. The heart loves self-autonomy. So the will will choose to believe evolution, and then the mind goes to work justifying it. And evolution teaches and or implies the following. Number one, their survival of the fittest. The strong survive the evolutionary process, and the weak die off. Number two, human beings are just animals. We are advanced animals, but we're only animals. Third, there is no creator God, and since there is no creator God, there are no transcendent moral standards. Number four, since there is no transcendent God who creates moral standards, morals are created by the strongest people. And historically, that means the one who had the most gold, guns, and soldiers. Every worldview that exists leads to inevitable conclusions. Every theology that exists leads to inevitable conclusions. So if you believe something, just take step after step and bring it to its eventual conclusion and see if it still makes sense. So Charles Darwin is considered the father of modern evolution. If Darwinism is true and we are only animals and only the strong survive, and morality is decided by the strongest, then why shouldn't the strongest just hasten the demise of the weak? It's just a matter of time anyway, and the weakest impede social progress. Darwin thought so. In his book, The Descent of Man, here's what he wrote. At some future period, not very distant as measured by centuries, the civilized races of man will almost certainly exterminate and replace throughout the world the savage races. And he defined the savage races as Mongolians, Africans, Indians, South Americans, Polynesians, Eskimos, and Australians. Sorry, Australia. And this evil philosophy influenced Adolf Hitler. In his book, Mein Kampf, he proposed war against, quote-unquote, lesser nations because he said it was necessary, and I'm quoting, as a precondition for all human progress. The weak create financial and emotional headwinds for human advancement, and without the weak in the way, there can be a strong, progressive, and pure human race, and that evil Philosophy, disguised as science, 
brought us the Holocaust and all sorts of human misery. Now that's the evolutionary worldview. The Christian worldview tells us something completely different. So look again at Genesis chapter 2, verse 7. God created the body of man. Verse 7 says, God formed Adam from the dust of the ground. But that's just the body. And in this way, man is similar to the animals. Genesis 1.28 says, out of the ground, the same soil used to create man, out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the sky. So Adam and Eve had God-created bodies, but man brought sin into the world, and the human body became subject to decay. In Genesis 3.19, God told Adam, you are dust, and to dust you shall return. So regardless of embalming, or cremation, or those whose bodies are never found, Everyone turns to dust. But that's just your body. God also created your soul. And that's what differentiates mankind from any other living creature. Again, Genesis chapter 2, verse 7. The Lord God breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. So Adam became a body with a soul. The soul makes us capable of knowing and communing with God. It also makes us capable of sinning against God. But the soul is what makes you different from an animal. And your soul is unique. You did not get your soul from your parents. You got it from God. There's a theological term I'll throw out here. It's very disputed. It's called traducianism. T-R-A-D-U-C-I-A-N-I-S-M, traducianism. It teaches that you got your soul from your parents, much like you inherited genes from them in your body. But friend, God gave you your soul. There's only one of you. You're divinely created. God breathed life into you, and that life will never end. So that brings us to the second question, what is the soul? Here's some Bible dictionaries that I looked up. One says it's the rational, spiritual, and immortal part of our being. That's a good definition. Another one says the moral being designed for everlasting life or the inner part of the person that thinks, wills, feels, and desires. I've always called it this. It's the who you really are. It's you. So it's important to understand the eternality of the soul. Your soul will never die. Now, how do we know it will exist forever? Jesus said in Matthew chapter 10, Do not fear those who can kill the body, or excuse me, who can kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. In Luke chapter 16, the Bible says the rich man died, so his body ended. But it says he was in Hades. That was his soul. Our body has a beginning and it does have an end, but your soul matters because it will live forever. D.L. Moody gave the example of a bird taking a grain of sand from the earth and taking one million years to fly that one grain of sand to the moon. And a million years later, that bird comes back to the earth for another single grain of sand. 
And however many million years it takes, that bird takes every grain of sand from every place in the world and carries it to the moon one grain at a time. And when that bird is finished, it's breakfast time in heaven, he said. And even that analogy falls short. You have a soul. It will live forever. And J.C. Ryle said many years ago, this is a long quote, but it's a good one. He said, you may go all over the world and you will never receive but one answer on this subject. You'll find nations buried in degrading superstition and mad after idols. You'll find others sunk in the darkest ignorance and utterly unacquainted with the one true God. But you will not find a nation or people among whom there is not some consciousness that there is a life to come. He said, far down in the human heart, beneath the rubbish heaped up by the fall, there is an inscription which nothing can efface, telling us that this world is not all, and that every one of us has an undying soul. Now another example of the eternality of the soul is found in the wisdom book of Ecclesiastes. So look at chapter 12 there. Look at verse 7 when you get there. Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verse 7. It says, Then the dust will return to the earth as it was, and the spirit, or the soul, will return to God who gave it. Which means there's not only the eternality of the soul, there's also an urgency regarding the soul. This entire passage in Ecclesiastes refers to the ravages that age wreaks on the body. I'm starting to experience that. Verse 3, In the day mighty men stoop, the grinding ones stand idle because they're few, and those who look through the windows grow dim. Verse 4, The sound of the grinding mill is low, and one will arise at the sound of the bird. This is imagery. Mighty men in verse 3 refers to the legs. The grinding one refers to the teeth. The windows are the eyes. The sound of the grinding mill is low. That refers to a loss of hearing. One will arise at the sound of the bird. Many elderly awake very early. So look at verse 6. Solomon said, Remember him before the silver cord is broken and the golden bowl is crushed. The pitcher by the well is shattered, and the wheel at the cistern is crushed. The silver cord may refer to the spinal column. The golden bowl, the mind, the pitcher, the heart, the wheel, the circulatory system. These are all pictures of what happens to the body of one who has been privileged to live for many years. So look up at verse 1 of this chapter. Solomon, who wrote this at the end of his life in old age, said, remember your Creator in the days of your youth, before you grow old. But what does he mean by remember your Creator? What does he not say worship or glorify or praise your Creator? Not too long ago, my quiet time was in the book of Judges. Now, that's a book not for the faint of heart. It tells us that Israel forgot God. Now, they knew who he was, but they forgot his deliverance 
from the slavery of Egypt. They forgot he gave them the land of Canaan. They forgot that they were enjoying the blessings created by the hard work of people who came before them. They forgot God. They forgot all of his blessings, all that he had done for them. And when man forgets God, his depravity quickly escalates. And he has a desire to worship new gods, something different, something exciting. And he spiritually assimilates into the lost world around him. Every single one of us has spiritual amnesia. So we need constant reminders that we don't fall into the ways of Israel, that we don't forget God. This is why we gather to worship on the Lord's Day. And you might say, well, but we do the same things every Sunday. Well, to a certain extent, that's true. We sing, we pray, we preach, we baptize, we observe the Lord's Supper, we fellowship. We do that in part because we're always learning. A disciple means learner. But we do it so we remember God and all of his benefits. So Solomon says, remember God now, especially while you're young. Care for your soul. Spiritually shape your soul now. If you wait until you're older, you can find you've dug deep and unhealthy spiritual ruts in your soul. And those, soul, that, those ruts are very difficult to break. So there's the eternality of the soul, an urgency regarding the soul. There is a comforting security about your soul. We didn't read it, but in Psalm 31, verse 7, David said, You have known of the troubles of my soul. I wonder today how many of you would say that your soul is troubled. Life has a way of doing that. I was telling Jesse here just before church, I'm on two Facebook groups about my renal disease. I don't get on Facebook usually to scroll. There's groups I'm part of. And my, my disease is a rare disease. And it's astonishing the amount of conflict and divorce that occurs because of disease. The story often goes like this. The well spouse says to the sick spouse, I love you. This is a verbatim quote someone said to me one time. He said his wife said, I love you, but I didn't sign up for this. And they divorced the sick spouse. I mentioned that story to an oncology nurse I saw Monday. She said she hears the same thing often with oncology patients. So he used to volunteer for three renal groups, and we would get together at the airport once a year for a meeting. And I think I volunteered for five or six years, and I met several people face-to-face -face who had the same story. And when they would tell the story... You could see the defeat in their countenance. When you read the, the posts online, you can just feel the hurt. 
And some of you here this morning would say you're wounded, you're hurt, something in life made you feel degraded, and your soul is troubled. Is your soul troubled today? Thank God for his graciousness. Psalm 56 says, You have kept count of my tossings. You have kept count of my tossings. You put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? So I want you to know that God knows about every one of your sleepless nights. He knows every tear you've shed. He knows why you've shed them. He knows what you face today. He knows what you've endured that no one else can understand. And God doesn't look at you through the lens of your trouble or your hurt or your rejection. He doesn't look at you like any human being does. He looks at you as a loved child, one whose soul has been saved by grace, and one who is safe in his grace. Yet some of you would say your soul is troubled, but it's not because of the pain of life. You would say your soul is troubled because however many years you've been as a Christian, you just seem to never get it right. You always fall short. And you would say there's evidence of that in my life. You'd say, you know, I have broken relationships. I've, I've done this thing here that I so greatly regret. I, I struggle in this area so badly. I have a besetting sin and I just can't seem to get rid of it. You feel like you far you fall excuse me you fall far short as a Christian. I want to share you with you that I feel this often. There was a great Scottish preacher named Robert Murray McShane. You've heard me talk about this before. One of his prayers was, "Lord, make me as holy as a saved sinner can be." I pray that often, but a lot of times I feel like I never get there. So your self-assessment may sound something like this. You would say, my witnessing is weak or it's non-existent. I don't get to my Bible every day and I feel guilty about that. But there are a couple of things that bother you more than that. Paul said, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. And you're not sure you've ever experienced that. Ephesians chapter 5 says, be filled with the Holy Spirit, but you're not sure that's ever happened. Or you wanted to do some great thing for the Lord. Maybe it was uh, vocational. Maybe it was something that you had a dream about that you thought for sure it was going to happen, and it didn't happen, and it's not going to happen. And when you add all these things up, you believe that you generally displease God. Now, if that's you, I want you to hear me. All of that is nothing more than the work of the evil one. 
The Puritan Richard Sibbs addresses this subject. This is another long quote, but this is better. He said, there is a sort of people who being drawn out of Satan's kingdom and into God's, whom Satan labors to unsettle and disquiet. Being the God of the world, he's vexed to see men in the world walk above the world. And since he cannot hinder their estate, he will trouble their peace and damp their spirits and cut asunder the sinew of all their endeavors. And in wise counsel, he said this, these should labor to maintain their portion and the glory of a Christian profession. God loves you. Whether or not you think you've experienced the power of his resurrection, whether or not you get to your Bible every day, and he loves you if your soul is deeply troubled. In fact, he loves you as much as anyone in the world. He loves you as much as any martyr who died for him. His son died for you just like he died for everyone else in the world. So if your soul is troubled then cast that burden onto him. If you have an intolerable weight of anxiety or fear or discouragement or self-negativity, I don't know what else to call it, roll it onto him. Psalm 55, 8 says, cast your burden on the Lord and he will sustain you. But what does it mean to roll or cast your burden onto him? Take every single issue you deal with, name it, and pray, Lord Jesus, you are the Lord of my life. I know that you love me, and I thank you for your love. Please take this burden from me. Please take this burden from me because you are my burden bearer. I can't bear my burdens. I need you to do it. You're the only one in the universe who can bear my burden. So, Lord, I surrender myself to you and I surrender this burden to you. God's care for you is one of the sweetest comforts in life. In fact, do you know that God knows your heart? And you say, now hang on, you're getting into bad news. No, I'm not. The heart is deceitfully wicked. Who can know it? But he also knows when it was in your heart when you tried to share Jesus. You were afraid. You tried. Maybe you feel like nothing came of it. But that was in your heart. He knows your motives. He knows when they're good and virtuous. God knows your soul. And he knows all that your soul generally desires to do and to be. King David wanted to build a house for the Lord, and the Lord did not allow that. David got it ready, and Solomon built it. But God knew what was in David's heart, and here's what he said. Because it was in your heart to build a house for my name, you did well that it was in your heart. So God knows what's in your heart to do and to be. 
And all of this is an encouragement to faithful believers. Jesus knows your soul. He knows your soul better than you know it. And he remembers your works, your words, your tears, and your desires. But he does not remember your sins. Jeremiah 31, 34, I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember no more. God is omniscient. He knows all things, yet he's reassuring us, I will remember no more. Which leads us to the final question. Where did the soul come from? What is the soul? Number three, the disposition of the soul. Where will it end up? Your way right now may seem very hard. You may have people in your life who are against your walk with Jesus. Your lot in life may seem very unfair. Or, as you try to walk with Jesus, people laugh at you. I've experienced that plenty. They may mock you. They may try to shame you. Remember this. The best is coming. So right now, time is fleeting Sin is growing, as Richard Sibbs said, labor for the prosperity of your soul. And as you do that, know that you're secure in God's grace. And yet there would be some of you here who would say, my soul is lost. My soul would not be in heaven if I died today. The soul separates from the body at death. If your body died, your soul would not be with Jesus. God loves you, too, and I can prove it. He loves you because he died for your sin, and by faith in him, your soul can be with him forever. Have you ever wondered this? Why in the world would God want you to be with him forever? I mean, it's not as if you and I have anything to add to him. He's not lonely. The Trinity experiences perfect fellowship. He's not asking for our advice. In his love, Jesus took God's wrath for sin when he died on the cross. And that's great. I could say, well, I died for your sin, which means nothing. But Jesus proved that he took God's wrath for your sin because he rose again, forever defeating the power of sin and death. So this morning, if you believe that your soul is headed for hell, if you believe that Jesus was raised from the dead, if you want to be rid of your sins, then trust Jesus as your Lord and Savior. He will save you. Believe on Him and His finished work on the cross. Or to put it another way, cast your soul upon Him with all of its sin and all of its stain, and He will save you, He will make you clean, He will make you His child, and He will give you eternal life. And someone here or someone watching is thinking this. I'll get my life cleaned up and then I'll come to Jesus. Man, that is putting the cart before the horse. You come to Jesus and he changes your life. So if you would say my soul is not saved, then I want to urge you. I want to invite you with everything I have in my being. I want to urge you to put your faith and trust in Him. He'll give you a beautiful new life. You'll know that your soul will be with Him forever. Twice in this Bible, and I'm paraphrasing, He says these things are written 
so that you can know, not guess, not hope, not cross your fingers. These things are written so that you know that you may have eternal life. Let's go to the Lord in prayer.